Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Laura Ketzel. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Principal Analyst Bernhard Schaffrich and Vice President and Research Director Pascal Metzka to discuss the latest trends in innovation strategy and get a preview of our upcoming Technology and Innovation EMEA event. Welcome both. Hi, everybody. Thanks a lot for having me. Yes, and greetings from rainy Munich. So I know we hear a lot about innovation. There's probably a lot of business leaders who have been told they need to launch innovation efforts. But where do you start? How do you do that? Are there any specific strategies that you're guiding clients with today? Yeah, so maybe I can start. And what we have been seeing and hearing through our research and also throughout the years is that those organizations, both private and public companies, but also governmental bodies, those that master innovation actually master five things or competencies or capabilities. And it's not just about what many innovation leaders think. It's just about the right technology. So just adopt the right emerging or mature technology, and then you're done. And then this is the holy grail of innovation. So embracing the right technology is just one out of five of these competencies innovation leaders master. So it's equally important to have the right strategy in place, the right culture, how you work with partners, with suppliers, with customers. Do you allow them to challenge the way you're working? So how you work with these ecosystems is critically important. And also, of course, how are you organized for innovation? And depending on your own maturity you're in, you might organize differently. So it's these five competencies which you need to tackle when starting innovation. So it's a little bit more complex than just the one thing, which is the silver bullet. So it's a couple of things, but you know, understanding these five things will get you to a certain point and you will see the first innovation results. And you have to organize yourselves around these five competencies in such a way that you can do them on a recurring basis. So this is all about moving innovation away from being this one-time big moonshot innovation project to doing it in a, on a repeatable basis and not just driving it towards moonshot innovation, but also understand that innovation can help you drive operational short-term innovation, medium-term innovation, and ultimately, hopefully, also some long-term business model innovation. But it has to be underpinned with competencies that allow you to do this on a recurring basis, which is why you know, building these five competencies across the organization is so important to tackle innovation on an ongoing basis. And so one of those five competencies is structure, right? And so Bernhard or Pascal, I was wondering if you could comment on the sort of optimal level of process intensity for making innovation happen. Because I, I know I've seen lots of folks err on the side of way too much process. And so like nothing gets out of the process funnel and also way too little process. So you get lots and lots of proof of concepts that then never go anywhere. So I wondered sort of what's the right happy medium there? So of course you need process and it's not that kind of quantifiable degree of process organization you need, but usually what we see seems to work well is when you get started for the first time, it's all about empowerment, engagement, creating that innovative spirit across the organization and make people start getting their hands dirty. And it's good to have some sort of go-to person, which you could even call a process or a structure. So that go-to department person, lab or innovation hub would help you to, to better understand where to go next and how to combat some of the challenges you might come across. 
And then once this kind of grassroots evolution has come to a point where you feel like, oh, wait a minute, there is too much redundancy, overlap, inefficiency, then it's a good point to think about what are the steps we want to take or we should take in order to come up with tangible innovation results. So you would need to think about how do we consolidate the different ideas coming from the different people, sources, departments, brands, geographical entities, who is going to decide upon these if we need centralized decisions? And then what happens next? How do we go from a POC to a pilot to a ramped up product or service or just an improvement of something existing? And as you learned how to walk through these steps, aka process, you, you would also learn, should we go for a more centralized approach, for a more federated or even democratized approach? So it's pretty much qualitative in nature. Start very small and then you build process as you learn. And I think the key important point here, Bernard, is that we are not thinking about this in a rather dogmatic way, but it has to be pragmatic. So as you said, it's really coming down to how can you make your first innovation effort really stick with the organization? Then you have to document it. Then you will reapply the same process, maybe have to tailor it again to your certain circumstances or to the business use case. But it's not about identifying your one particular rather dogmatic process with which you then try to sort of build all your innovation use cases, but learn by doing it continuously and then adjusting it one time and time again and make it stick in the context of the individual scenarios that you're trying to tackle. So the worst that you can do is overload the whole thing with process, governance, and structures, but you rather have to also apply a trial and error approach. You have to allow also for failure. You have to build a cultural underpinning that allows also for flexibility and creativity. But you absolutely want to monitor the process. You absolutely want to sort of build use cases and best practices, but you don't want to become overly dogmatic because that ultimately will kill any innovation. And this is something we see quite frequently, as you know, Pascal. So especially large companies have established, I would say, a decent, not dogmatic level of structure, process, organizational setting, objective systems, metric systems. And they come to a point where incremental innovations, maybe a, a little bit disruptive, will make it through the whole process. And then they are struggling with the next step. So they want to have a, a higher degree of disruptiveness in their innovation outcomes, and they don't get there. So they ask us, so what do we do wrong? Actually, there is nothing they do wrong. However, this dogmatic approach towards we centralize the innovation effort, we centralize the process, it's valid across the globe of our whole company, or if the company is organized for one entity only, then it's applicable and a must across the whole organization. And this usually leads to people pointing to the centralized process and structure and objective system and just uh, sitting back and just relying on this central organizational unit to innovate on their behalf. So if you want innovation to occur across an organization, everybody feeling empowered, enabled, but also responsible for innovation, then you would need to pivot to a more federated model with shared accountability. And to your point, if you're too dogmatic about the structure piece, you won't get there. Are you seeing a move from centralized to decentralized because these are the conversations you're in with clients? Is, or is it sort of, it depends what's right for your organization. Those two models are both viable. 
I think both models can be viable. What we typically see is that companies start with something like an innovation lab or an incubator or some kind of organization that is relatively confined from the rest of the organization, where they allow for sufficient freedom, for creativity, for experimentation, and also for failure. But then often the mistake is that they take this sort of rather liberal approach to innovation and not really apply it to the rest of the organization. So what Bernard just said is really important. Everybody is responsible for co-innovation. Everybody can and should be a co-innovator. One company that does this particularly well in Germany, for instance, is Robert Bosch. They went through a cultural transformation to ultimately really also drive everybody from the factory worker to the senior executive to become an active co-innovator. And it doesn't matter in what level of the hierarchy you ultimately sit. It's really about you know, what value does the idea bring to the table. And it's really that kind of democratization of innovation that ultimately will get you there. And so, yes, you can start in a rather confined innovation lab kind of context. But again, you have to sort of then bring it to scale. You have to bring it to the rest of the organization and not keep it confined in either a centralized innovation function or a lab function in and of itself. You have to continuously scale up and learn how to do innovation across the board so that you can only not just do the mutual innovation, but also the operational innovation, which is the pragmatic short-term innovation that helps to drive efficiency and effectiveness. And so, Pascal, you just brought up there that we've, you've got sort of your, if you want to think about it with the three levels of innovation, as it were, sort of from incremental to moonshot. And so I'm curious from both of you as to whether different sorts of structural approaches, need for breaking down silos is different in the case of those sort of different levels of innovation, as it were. Or is it really kind of the same set of things that you need to do to make innovation happen and to have everybody be a co-innovator? And some of the innovation will naturally kind of sort itself into incremental and sort of moonshot stuff will be a bit more directed, at least at the beginning. How do you see that? So it's a little bit of both, Laura. So what we typically, not always, but typically see is that you can be very successful with these smaller and larger increments of improving existing stuff, but also inventing new, which is incremental add-ons to something that existed from a product or a service portfolio point of view when going with a, a, a centralized or even departmental innovation approach. However, quite naturally, innovations require collaboration across functions, even though the result, the tangible outcome might be beneficial for just one department, but usually it requires collaboration from many ends. So you need technology, you need security, you need the ideators, you might need people from marketing, from sales. So this type of collaboration is usually natural to any innovation. However, it seems to work without up to a certain level, as I said, incremental innovations. Now, we have also seen very disruptive innovations just happening within one line of business. So you could argue that it's not an either or, it's both end. We also see, and this is independent of industry or geography, that many disruptive innovations up to the famous moonshots all of them require cross-organizational collaboration and coordination and people with different talent and skill working together over a long period of time. So there seems to be a causality between moonshot, so the most disruptive innovations, and the ability of an organization to unleash the power of collaboration. 
versus more incremental, less disruptive innovation limited to those organizations that are not a strong enabler or empowering cross-enterprise collaboration. But again, there are shades of gray in between. Well, and I think what's making things even more interesting and also more complex in a way is the fact that ultimately your one innovation builds on the other, right? So you may start, uh, let's say, using generative AI just because it's a popular theme right now to drive an operational innovation around customer service, for instance. Uh, you start in a very departmental fashion. You look at the efficiency of the productivity of your worker, of your customer service representative. But then you start to realize that that same level of technology also can elevate not just the customer service process, but link between customer service and inventory or supply chain processes. You then move from there into maybe a business model change. So the point is that incremental innovation even though it is initially confined to an operational function, can ultimately help you steer towards a transformation that is driving you also towards a moonshot innovation, which again, you know, the breaking the silos is not just a prerequisite to success, but it makes it really, you know, sort of necessary also to leverage the full power of the technology that you can bring to bear in order to drive innovation in, at scale. So in that example, Pascal, is it the responsibility of the customer service leader to say, hey, we've implemented this, this could have massive impact, implications, whatever, for my supply chain kind of leader? Or is that the technology team leader saying, hey, we've done this here, we should test it with this group as well? Like, How is that being facilitated across the organization if one team is having great success with an innovation, as an example? Basically, ideally, again, because innovation is everybody's job, um, you know, the, the business leader or the line of business manager, in this case, customer service, should be able to think beyond the process that he or she is responsible for. However, I think this is the great opportunity for the tech executives, for the CIOs or the chief technology officers in charge, because they are really the orchestrators. They should be able to oversee how you know, generative AI not only implicates customer service, but how to create the linkage, how to you know, sort of leverage AI to weave between inventory, supply chain, customer service, and after-sales service processes. So this is where I think, in particular for CEOs and tech executives, you know, there is a massive opportunity to foster this collaboration and use also their technology expertise to drive more cross-departmental innovation going forward. So whilst I would like to think the line of business leaders have, you know, sort of the perspective, really who is really sitting at the center of this is the tech executive because they should be able to sort of orchestrate across the board and then really connect the dots. And this is one of the challenges, right? Because what you just described is going way beyond normal executions or the way of operating or part of the role, which makes it so tricky and challenging for any executive, but also for any employee, right? Exactly, because there's also, you know, one of the big issues here, it has to do with metrics. You know, what are the metrics that we assign not just to innovation, but you know, to the functional processes, including the tech executive themselves. Uh, and so unless we sort of start to measure success, not just in the way of driving internal efficiencies, but also start to honor and reward people on driving effectiveness, change in 
customer satisfaction, the net promoter score, revenue growth, time to market. We are not going to get people to drive some of this change that is needed across the organization. And so again, this goes back to the breaking the silo theme. Yeah, we have to also build the right incentive structures and reward structure to instill innovation at scale. So Bernard, earlier you mentioned that sort of the bigger, in quotes, so the innovation is, so towards that moonshot end of the scale, the more necessary it is to break down those silos and that innovation capacity and kind of innovation accountability not be confined to an innovation organization or an innovation lab. I wonder for companies that look at their innovation portfolio and say, huh, we're not really coming up with as much disruptive innovation as we would ideally like. There are probably some other barriers that might be standing in their way. Uh, what would those be in your experience and research? Oh, there can be a lot. So first of all, the question is, if you look at your innovation portfolio and you find yourself pretty much in this incremental area versus more disruptive innovations, then the question is, is that just sufficient? So companies who are in a market situation, in a competitive situation that doesn't require them to be more disruptive, so why should they? And what we see across the board is only those companies that are threatened by competitors, threatened by changing customer or consumer demands, they change, they become more disruptive when it comes to innovation because they have to. Some others lost the game, as we know, or new companies coming into a market, disrupting all the other incumbents there, they are disruptive by nature because they were built on a disruptive idea. So, so this is the kind of disclaimer. Um, other challenges, of course, barriers like technology adoption. And technology adoption seems very easy from the outside, especially when the technology seems to be or seems to have a low entry barrier, like everybody could play around with generative AI. But adopting those technologies on an enterprise level, including your security approvals, you know, procuring the stuff, especially if it's something physical and not only subscriptions or licenses, that's something companies are struggling with. But also taking this outside in view. So everybody thinks they are customer driven, even customer obsessed. And, and when you ask them, so do you know what your customers actually appreciate and value? Then it's mainly based on assumptions, which is why we at Forrester, as you know, Laura, we are preaching that companies need to ask what clients actually need, desire, expect. So that outside infu and also thinking in end-to-end -end customer expectations, aka journeys, is something many organizations are struggling with. And again, this requires collaboration. So when you work across a customer journey, everybody with customer touch points and also the people supporting people with customer touch points as part of their jobs need to sit at the table, requiring collaboration. Stopping here because there are so many more aspects, but these are two very prominent ones, I guess. If I can maybe add to this, and I would like to answer this question in a slightly different way. So here are some of the things that should not stand in the way of driving innovation. Um, number one, and I often hear this from clients in financial services, but also in pharma, regulatory constraints. Oh, we have to be compliant. Um, well, compliance and regulatory constraints are no longer an excuse. We've seen this now during the pandemic. Uh, where the pharma industry all of a sudden was able to sort of develop vaccines at rapid speed using co-innovation networks uh, to drive you know the development of these you know wonderful vaccines so regulatory constraints don't count 
The second excuse that we often hear is we don't have the right people. Um, that is not true. I mean, there is tremendous creativity everywhere. It is often just not you know, desired. It's often prevented by the wrong incentivization mechanisms. Uh, so creativity or the lack thereof is not really an excuse. Uh, access to technology. Oh, we don't have the right technology. We don't have access to X, Y, Z kind of technology. The technology access is ubiquitous. Again, the pandemic has clearly has proven that you know access to the cloud, to modern workspaces, to collaborative tools is commonplace. It's ubiquitous. So there is no constraint. So we should absolutely point out that some of these very traditional excuses for why we cannot be innovative, they don't count anymore because we have proven in particular during the times of the pandemic that they can be overcome. And so we should not try to make those excuses for not being sufficiently innovative. So I'm wondering if we've got a new generation entering the workforce at the moment, right? And if we think back to sort of previous waves of new ways of doing things, some of that can be traced back to the previous wave of millennials entering the workforce. And now we have Gen Z. So, and one of the sort of, Pascal talked about not having the right people is not an excuse because there's creativity everywhere and you're probably just not harnessing it. And I think that's an absolutely fair comment. So I'm curious if there's anything unique that our sort of new Gen Z workers bring to the party that companies should really think about harnessing. So my bet is they will break the silos, but not because they have come along to break the silos, but because of some of the characteristics we see among not all, but many of them. Of course, again, this is over generalizing, but we did some research to better understand their characteristics of so many Gen Z individuals. And I'm convinced they will help bridge the silos because they grew up with all the digital tools we had to learn to use as we grew older. The internet was around, cloud computing was around, so they grew up with a notion of information is at my fingertips. It's always available instantly, which also makes them kind of intolerant towards waiting for innovation or for information or an answer. So they learned they don't need to rely on islands of knowledge or individuals, especially in organizations who still try to use information and knowledge as a manifestation of their power position. And many of them are also very hacky and do it yourself. So they rather do stuff because they are also passionate about getting stuff done, both digitally, but also physically. And maybe they will ask for forgiveness later if they have breached some internal organizational rules or they inadvertently cut across the silos because they just want to have the answer or the outcome of that thing that drove them nuts. So. But again, that's my bit. But of course, it requires the right organizational structure to nurture these sort of Generation Z workers. And again, you know, we have found in our research that you know, most of the companies out there today still drive skill sets very much in the context of you know, sort of siloed business domains. But the point of the matter is that you know, the future generation does not want to be stovepiped. It wants to evolve its talents across multiple fields of the business. And so as our future of work research clearly shows, those companies that can sort of drive career paths that are more multidisciplinary, that touch on multiple strands of the business, 
they can not only grow more quickly, but they can also drive more innovation because then you know everybody is an expert in multiple fields of the business and can drive input, can drive innovation across the silos and then also scale it over time. And that's really critical for companies to understand. By the way, going back to Robert Bosch, you're one of my favorite innovation examples. What they do, for instance, with the Gen Z workers is they basically take the senior executives of the older generation to school, meaning that they instill reverse mentoring. So the executives, the older executives have to listen to the Gen Z, the digital native workers, and have to go to school to understand from this generation what they would like to see from Bosch, how they would like to be leveraged, how they would like to see Bosch sort of driving career models, collaboration, and so on and so forth. So employee listening skills, obviously, is what we're talking about here, but instilling it also in a corporate culture that is not just top-down, siloed command and control, but that focuses on this clustered mode of operations where you then take the Gen Z worker really for what they have to offer. And that's really, I think, what Bosch in this particular case has done tremendously well. Are there any other examples we'd want to share where best practices were applied and successes were gained um, from an innovation perspective? You want to talk about the Bayer case study, Bernhard? Yeah, that's a good one. And it's an interesting one because the main intent wasn't innovation, but it came naturally. So Bayer was on a journey of cross-company cost containment. And that was the prerequisite for the second step after that, which was and is digital transformation. And as they cut down cost, of course, all the corporate functions had to cut down cost as well, and w which means central IT, local IT units as well, and uh, deliberately reduce the local IT footprint. So local IT departments in their more than 90 countries or so they're doing business in. And what they realized later was that many of the employees in all these countries, they were left behind when it came to IT implementations, upgrades, updates, local IT support regarding their physical devices, laptops, desktops, smartphones, everything. So what they did instead of re-ramping up the local IT footprint, because again, they were under this cost containment mandate, they provided them with low-code, no-code tools that would help them to kind of get self-serviced IT support. And these tools were helping them to automate manual tasks, so technologies like robotic process automation, but also more broadly, out-of-the-box content delivering IT assets that help them in a self-service mode to not only survive, but actually to get into new areas they wouldn't have even thought of. And this led to a high degree of innovation on local levels, mainly digital innovation. So how can we become more efficient in the way we order I don't know, IT assets, physical assets. How can we be more effective in our communication to employees and customers by leveraging this technology or managing a set of communication channels they wouldn't have even thought about before? So by means of cutting cost, enabling people in a democratized fashion to help themselves, but of course augmented through a very sophisticated training and coaching program, enable innovation, which went and goes beyond incremental into more and more disruptive innovations. Actually, a great example. So 
obviously we just scratched the surface on a very dense and deep topic. And I know that you'll be covering a lot of this information at the upcoming Technology and Innovation EMEA event um, in London in October. So what else can folks expect at that forum? Well, the key message here is that you know, we want to leverage the Technology Innovation Forum EMEA to showcase how companies can break the silo structures and really drive repeatable, scalable innovation, but also drive your know, collaboration uh, with outside partners and ultimately you know, achieve their business goals. Uh, we have a number of tracks that will look into emerging technology and how they will also instill and foster innovation. We surely will also touch on generative AI is part of that, but also we'll look at you know how companies can drive a sustainability agenda and be innovative at the same time. I think it's really important to understand that whilst the pandemic hopefully is now over, your disruptions are not going to end. We live in times of permanent change, and the way to sort of tackle continual change is by breaking the silo structures and really drive and foster innovation at scale. And that's really what we want to highlight. And you know, we're very blessed that we have also a number of great client case studies and panelists joining us for this particular event who will talk about their innovation networks, who will talk about how they've been leveraging things like curing bots, for instance, to foster innovation around application development how they've created you know, a new ESG agenda that really drives results in the context of what we are all faced with. So there are a number of fantastic case studies that we're going to present, but the overarching theme here is really to help companies to be resilient in times of continual change. And the way to get there is to break down the silo structures overall. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today, be sure to check out the agenda for our Technology and Innovation EMEA event happening October 12th and 13th in London and digitally. Learn more at for.com slash TIEMEA23. That's F-O-R-R.com slash T-I-E-M-E-A 23. Thanks for listening.